much better. Welcome to Coastal Conversations, a monthly program that deals with major issues confronting the nation's coastal areas, marine and Great Lakes. This program is made possible through the generosity of the Roddenberry Foundation. I'm Jerry Schubel with the Aquarium of the Pacific, and I'm your host. Today we're going to explore what many scientists believe is one of the most serious threats to the world ocean and to marine life, ocean acidification. It may also be the threat that is least well understood by the public. It's a silent threat that can sneak up on you. I have with me today Dr. Richard Feely, senior scientist of NOAA's Senior scientist of NOAA's Pacific Marine Environmental Laboratory in Seattle, Washington, and one of the world's leading experts on ocean acidification, and Robert Davidson, the executive director and CEO of the Seattle Aquarium, which has been a pioneer in bringing the ocean acidification story to aquarium visitors. Welcome to both of you. It's always good to start at the beginning. So Dick Feely, tell us what is ocean acidification, what are the units for measuring it? What's driving the change in the ocean acidification? And then we'll, uh, in a little bit, get to the reasons that we worry so much about it. Dick? Sure, thank you. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here. Ocean acidification is the increase in the acidity of the oceans caused by the burning of uh, fossil fuels, which release carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. And we use fossil fuels for our primary source for energy. Every single day, we release about 70 million tons of carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. And about uh, a quarter of that, about 22 million tons, is taken up by the oceans. Since the beginning of the Industrial Revolution, we have mankind has released about 2 trillion tons of carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. And that has caused an overall decrease in the pH of seawater about 0.1 pH units. Now, pH is a logarithmic scale, just like the Richter scale. So a one unit change in pH means a tenfold change in the concentration of the acidity of the water. So since the beginning of the Industrial Revolution, we have seen an increase of 30% of the acidity in our surface oceans. Dick, what, what caused scientists to first become concerned about uh, ocean acidification? Well, we began studying the chemistry of the oceans in global surveys in the late 80s and early 90s. This was part of the JGOS, International JGOS and Wolsch Hydrographic Survey. And as a result of those studies, we were able to show the uh, change in chemistry of the oceans, particularly at our time series sites. If you show the first slide, I can show you an example of that. The first slide that will, sh will show the uh, change in CO2 in the atmosphere at the uh, Mauna Loa site, this is the very famous Keeling curve. And corresponding with that, we can see the change in CO2 concentration in the oceans at Ocean Station Aloha at the University of Hawaii maintained since 1989. And what you see is that the ocean's increase in CO2 is about exactly the same as that atmospheric increase. We know this is due to fossil fuels because the isotopic signature of that CO2 is unique, and that is representative of fossil fuels. 
So from these data sets, we then calculate the pH change. And the third part of the slide, the lower part of the slide, shows the pH changes occurred at Station Aloha uh, since 1989. And what we see is a pH change about, on the average, about 0.01 pH units per decade change. So from measurements alone throughout the world oceans, we have been seeing these very dramatic and very important change in the chemistry of the oceans. pH is a master variable of seawater, and so pH changes represent significant changes in the chemistry of many other compounds in seawater that are affected by pH. And so biologists have been studying these processes and effects of pH changes since the late 1990s. And when they began to report back significant impacts on our marine ecosystems, that's when we sounded the alarm. And the alarm was sounded about uh, 2004. So we've increased the emissions of CO2 to the atmosphere. Uh, that gets transferred to, to the ocean. It uh, changes the pH. pH has gone down at about 0.1 units since the beginning of the Industrial Revolution some 200 years ago. You've already mentioned that pH is a log scale, but to most people in the public, a tenth of a unit is a pretty small change. Can you add anything to help un them understand that, that that's not a small change? You're, you're right, Jerry. It actually is a very large change. Over the last 200 years since the beginning of the Industrial Revolution, that 0.1 pH change that we are talking about, or a 30% increase in acidity, is faster than anything we have seen in the world oceans throughout most of geological time. We know for certain from the ice core records that it's faster than anything uh, over the last 800,000 years. And from the, a longer geological record, it's faster than anything we've seen over at least the last 50 million years, and maybe as fast as over the last 300 million years. So this is a very, very dramatic change over 200 years. And I think Many of the processes that cause, cha cause change in the oceans normally occur over several million years or so. What we are doing is affecting those kinds of changes over one or 200 years. But, and I think you have a slide to illustrate some of that, don't you? Uh, yes. Uh, the... The next slide, uh, we show the projected changes that have occurred uh, out to 2100. This is based on the recent IPCC report that, that lists what kinds of chemical changes we have seen thus far. And what you see in this slide is that the pH has changed about 0.1 pH units from 1850 to the present. And if you look from the, at the uh, projection out to 2100, we are seeing a per, perhaps a 0.3 or 0.4 uh, pH change by the end of this century, which would represent anywhere from 100 to 150% increase in the acidity of the oceans. And now, these are very, very dramatic changes for our ocean ecosystems. And, and Dick, it's pretty clear from this figure that the ocean does not respond uniformly, that some areas are becoming more acidic than others. What, what's the reason for that? What are the drivers? Well, there are several things that are going on. Uh, CO2 is an interesting gas that it tends to be met more readily absorbed by the ocean if the water is cold rather than if the water is warm. 
So we see a, a faster rate of acidification at higher latitudes, like uh, in the Arctic Ocean or around Alaska, also in the Antarctic Oceans. And in our coastal regions, we can have a combined impact of acidification from anthropogenic CO2 combining with a natural acidification that is occur occurs because when waters are upwelled along our coast, they bring in naturally occurring CO2-rich waters from deep water, about 150 meters or so, all the way to the surface and all the way to the beach. So when these two components of acidification meet at the beach, we have pH values that we might expect to see in the open ocean in the next century occurring on our beaches right now. And this is the reason why we've had a significant impact of acidification in our shellfish hatcheries along our coast of Washington and California and Oregon. So the, the, the higher latitudes, the Arctic and the Antarctic, are getting more acidic more rapidly because the waters are colder and colder waters absorb uh, more of the CO2 from the atmosphere. And along our coast where there's upwelling, uh, that's bringing colder water up, up to the surface. And so we see increased acidification in those areas. Am I right? That is correct. Right. And it turns out that uh, since about 2006 or so, the shellfish growers uh, reported tremendous declines in their production, the oyster seed that they grow in their hatcheries. And they asked the scientists for help on this. And when we uh, went into the hatcheries, we actually put the same sensors, the same pH sensors and CO2 sensors in their tanks that we have on board the ships. And lo and behold, what we found is when the water was very, very acidic, all the oyster larvae were dying. And they were dying very rapidly. They were dying within a couple of days. And they, they had to be replaced. And when the waters had high pH, the oyster larvae did quite fine. So this gave us the idea that not only is this a, a problem that's occurring right now that we can help them with, but it also gave us an idea that we could develop an adaptation strategy. And what we did is we showed them how to raise the pH in their, in their tanks and preserve the oyster larvae. And it turns out over the last two years of trying this, they've been very successful. And in fact, indeed, the oyster productions has gone up. So by developing some adaptation strategies that uh, will be effective, we can uh, alleviate and mitigate against some of the impacts of ocean acidification. Obviously, this works quite well in an aquaculture industry where you have control over the chemistry of the water. We're going to have to develop adaptation strategies for our shellfish uh, industries that occur all along our coast. And those shellfish farms uh, need our help to develop those strategies. So by having some knowledge of how the pH changes over time, these hatcheries were able to alter their, their, the times that they pumped and reduce the economic impact. We'll come back to that a second. But Bob, I want to ask you that m most of the people uh, uh, who come to our aquariums, they're concerned about the effects on marine life. And while Dick has pointed out the effects on hatcheries and oysters, most of our visitors are more concerned about the wild animals that, that live in, in the ocean. I would like to have you tell us a little bit about what, uh, what's happening to marine life. Thanks, Jerry. Um, and I think the, 
the story is disturbing. Uh, some of the uh, observations that are that we're we're uh, finding now, uh, for example, with uh, pteropods, who are uh, tiny shelled uh, creatures that are very important for juvenile salmon, um, that their shells are dissolving in Antarctica. And uh, that is a, a, a very um, troubling uh, development because it, it uh, uh, carries over into impact on uh, many shelled invertebrates, uh, such as mussels, uh, plus uh, phytoplankton, uh, which includes elevated uh, levels of algal bloom. And these are all things that have potential effect on the food chain for birds, for fish, for mammals, and recognize we're mammals too. You are quite active there in the state of Washington with uh, a governor's blue ribbon panel. Say a word about that. So Governor uh, Gregoire, uh, in her last year in office, convened a, as a result of some of these uh, concerns of the shellfish industries and others, and with the resource that we have here with, with Dick Feely and his colleagues, uh, convened a special Blue Ribbon Commission, really the first in the country on a statewide level, to look into uh, the questions, the impacts, the implications of ocean acidification and what might be done about it. And uh, that report was issued at the Seattle Aquarium uh, a year ago. And the, um, the, the results are uh, certainly uh, warrant a very serious attention and action. Uh, the uh, uh, panel that, that uh, looked into that came out with a series of recommendations uh, for things that uh, the state can do as a result of that, a special ocean acidification a uh, panel has been created for the state of Washington, uh, headquartered at the University of Washington. And uh, the aquarium is uh, partnering with that whole effort from the standpoint of citizen uh, awareness, citizen outreach, uh, and that aspect of it. So, Dick, we've we talked about then the effects on animals that have calcareous uh, skeletons, uh, things like pteropods. Uh, we talked about shellfish in coastal areas where there is upwelling and, and the fact that um, high latitudes are becoming more acidic more rapidly than, than low and, and mid latitudes. Say a word, though, about coral reefs because people are very concerned about coral reefs and uh, there's a lot of calcium carbonate in coral reefs. Are, are they vulnerable? Yes, they are. In fact, many of the coral reef species themselves are some of the most vulnerable species to ocean acidification. Uh, one of the most dramatic uh, studies that I've seen so far was done uh, off of Papua New Guinea, where they studied a, a large coral reef system where CO2 was naturally percolating through the seafloor from volcanic activity. And this CO2 was uh, pure CO2 that was coming through in that area. It was a small patch about the size of a football field. And what they discovered is that in the region where that CO2 was emitted at the seafloor, uh, 43 of 45 species of coral could no longer exist there. So this is a clear example of a very dramatic change in biodiversity caused by CO2. It was interesting to note that the pH levels in the water column uh, where the, the corals were being impacted 
we're about the same level that we might expect to see uh, at the end of this century. So it does give us a very uh, clear picture of how coral reefs might respond to elevated C2 levels in the future. And what do we know about how these, uh, the effects on single species or, or even something like a coral reef, coral reef, that these effects can affect an entire marine food web? Do we have any information on that? Uh, there, there is a situation where uh, the picture is not clear yet. We have glimpses of how the food web would work. Uh, Bob was talking about the pteropods, and that's one of our best examples. The pteropods are the primary food source for salmon uh, in, in the first year of the salmon's life in the open ocean. And they, they depend on the pteropods uh, to get them through the winter, for example. And so just a 10% drop in the pteropod production can cause as much as a 20% drop in the body weight of a uh, mature pink salmon. And it's these kinds of, uh, of images that we have of how the food web would, would impact uh, species that we care about. Uh, salmon for Pacific Northwest is a very charismatic fish. Uh, it, it represents a very large part of our culture and our economy. So that's one of the reasons why we're very concerned about these ecosystem responses. Uh, one of the researchers in, our, in my group right now is looking at the impacts of pteropods along the coast of Washington, Oregon, and California. And we're, we're, we're hoping that her research will give us a much clearer picture of what will happen in the future. Okay, so it's it's clear then that we continue to discharge large amounts of uh, greenhouse gases to the atmosphere, and those much of that gets transferred to the ocean. What do we think the trends are going to be in, in the future? Well, there are a number of different impacts that scientists are beginning to discover. Uh, certainly the, the impact on the shellfish is the clearest example, but some of the most recent uh, research has shown that uh, CO2 levels in, in the blood of, of fish tends to affect their way they uh, respond in the oceans. For example, uh, work with clownfish has shown that uh, at high levels of CO2 in their blood, they move towards their predators instead of away from their predators. And other studies have shown that they sort of lose their way. They, they, they lose their ability to navigate back home. All these kinds of behavioral impacts perhaps lead to uh, more extensive predation of fish in the future. And so we're just getting glimpses of how these processes might work and, and what the overall impacts could be. But in every case that we look at, particularly when we look at the food web uh, uh, studies, we see fairly dramatic impacts. Uh, here in Puget Sound, for example, if we lose some of our shellfish, it would have a very uh, strong impact on some of the bottom fish that feed on the shellfish. And so you would see drop-offs in the numbers of, of some of those fish as well. So the biological effects of ocean acidification are really clear and very disturbing, or at least the, the general tendency of those. Maybe not the, the specifics aren't well known. But I want you to say a word about 
the trends of uh, the decreasing pH in, in the ocean because it, the, some of these systems have a lot of inertia. CO2 emissions are continuing to go up. That continues to be transferred to the ocean. So if you look ahead the next, if over the next decades, uh, half a century or so, isn't it likely that the pH of the ocean is going to continue to go down? That is actually uh, very true. In fact, some of the most recent modeling studies that has taken place and published in the last couple of years shows that uh, the pH in our coastal waters of Washington, Oregon, California will go down more rapidly than in the general oceans, uh, by as much as 80% or so, such that uh, by the middle of this century, um, as much as 50% of the water in the summertime will be corrosive to the shell-forming uh, shellfish. And so that is a very, very dramatic change from what it is now, and it pretends to very significant impacts in the very near future, just 40 years from now. So tell me then, is there any evidence that some marine life is beginning to adapt to increased acidification? Are they able to adapt? There. The studies on adaptation have just occurred over the last two or three years, and Dr. Gretchen Hoffman from the University of California at Santa Barbara is one of the leaders in this field. They do some very elegant work about uh, looking at several generations of sea urchins and, and other organisms to see whether or not uh, the, through a, uh, several generations they can adapt to these changes. And in some cases, uh, there are some very hopeful responses. Uh, the, the, uh, sea urchins have shown that uh, going from one generation to the next, the, the impacts on the size of the sea urchins, which is really important because the, the, the structures that a sea, sea urchin uh, feeds with, the feeding legs, uh, the size uh, allows them to get enough food into their mouths. So these kinds of studies have shown that the sizes of their feeding tools tend uh, to increase from one generation to the next. And this is an example of body size traits that, that uh, show some adaptation. So the question uh, is whether the adaptation can keep pace with the, the, the rate of change in acidification. But then there's that's all right. There's also the, the, the ocean is getting warmer as a result of climate change. So we have the warming of the ocean and we have ocean acidification. Now the warming of the ocean makes it uh, the, the decrease in the transfer of CO2 from the atmosphere to the ocean. But uh, certainly, how do the, does the warming and ocean acidification, how do they interact? Dick? Yeah, that's a very good question. Um, the best example of that is some studies that have been done off of Australia where they've looked at the combined impacts of warming and CO2 increases on coral reef species. And what they found there was that the combined impacts of warming and CO2 together are far worse than the individual impact of just the warming by itself and the CO2 by itself. And so the, the warming changes the physics. The warming changes the physics and the, uh, the vertical stability of the water column. Say a word about that. Yeah, uh, so in, in, in the North Pacific, uh, what is 
important is that that warming increases the stratification of the water. That is, there's more warm water at the top, and it's warmer, and it's uh, colder at the bottom. So if you increase that warming and increase that stratification, then the communication of uh, nutrients that, that support uh, productivity and the exchange of oxygen from the surface to the subsurface, all that gets cut off for the most part. And so that warming will uh, shut down a lot of that productivity, particularly in the uh, temperate regions of the oceans. And what that has an impact of uh, combining the effects of acidification and deoxygenation and warming into uh, combined impacts, which are much worse than any one process by itself. So as scientists, we have to study all three of these impacts together, and this is what we're doing, uh, particularly along our coast. You know, the hypoxia problem on our coast, the decrease in the oxygen on our coast, is enhancing fish kills, particularly along Washington, Oregon, and Northern California. That hypoxia uh, exacerbates the impacts of acidification. So they will have decreased oxygen and increased CO2 by the same process. This is so a there is a new panel uh, supported by the state of California to address this issue, how these combined impacts will this work. This is a pretty grim story. Uh, what can we do to slow and perhaps stop and reverse ocean acidification? And, and then what, what can we do in terms of getting the public uh, more involved and, and um, knowledgeable about this. So, Dick, I want to start with you, but then, Bob, talk about what your aquarium is doing to help deal with this issue. Well, I, I believe that we can look at this at all scales, so, you know, at the uh, state and national scales and at the international scales, the, the awareness of the impacts of acidification on our marine ecosystems should help us to convince ourselves that we really need to move towards alternative uh, sources of energy. We need to get away from fossil fuels and, and, and curb the use of fossil fuels for energy so that we can reduce CO2 emissions. We need to reduce them quite dramatically over the next uh, 30 or 40 years if we're going to have a significant impact on the atmospheric concentrations. As you said earlier, there's tremendous inertia, so the, the decisions that we make as human beings right now over the next 10 years is crucial. And the United States is getting started on this. They are beginning to reduce those CO2 emissions. We need to work harder to, to reduce those emissions, and we have to work at the international level to uh, ensure that our international partners are doing the same. And this is very, very important. This is reason why we have these uh, international meetings every single year, uh, the Conference of the Parties meetings, the major one will be in Paris in, in 2015, where we will make uh, decisions on, as an international body on, on reduction of CO2 emissions. So, Bob what, can, what, Bob, what can we do as individuals? Well, I think... Uh, you know, it's in the scale of these of these issues that Dick has described. Um, it's I think we all tend to uh, kind of get overwhelmed by it, and and I think the the recognizing that uh, there are specific things that we can do. They're not trivial. 
they're specific. Um, they're not on the scale uh, that Dick is talking about. But in, in our daily lives, uh, the things we can decide at the aquarium, we just put in uh, solar panels on half the roof uh, and uh, in, uh, shifting our energy generation in that direction. People can do that in their homes. They are doing it. This technology is improving all the time, becoming more efficient. Uh, we can buy and use the most efficient lighting uh, appliances, heating and cooling systems in our own homes. As we build new homes, as we retrofit office buildings, the built environment is the biggest user of power uh, in the United States and in most industrialized countries. Um, you can take the bus or train. You can bike or walk to work or to the store. Uh, these are specific actions. You can buy locally grown foods and reduce the uh, transportation costs. These are, these are all just specific action items, but I think it goes to the general point as individuals, um, you need to be aware. We all need to be aware of our impact on the environment. What it is, what do we do that has uh, effects? Be conscious of that um, and in our daily lives recognize that as we make decisions, but also to Dick's point earlier on the uh, effort of our public policymakers, elected officials do not operate in a vacuum. Uh, they need uh, counsel from the public, and each of us should recognize that, and we have a responsibility to communicate with our elected officials regularly, effectively, knowledgeably, bring to bear the concerns and the information that we have, and ask for, demand uh, accountable action, and in particular, two things. One is investment in further science. Uh, the science related and understanding of the ocean is way, way behind that of our knowledge of the uh, atmosphere and space. And we need to address that and because this affects life on Earth in a pretty immediate form. Um, and then secondly, the, uh, the public policy action needs to support these kinds of conventions that Dick is talking about uh, where we're taking action on ocean acidification. So change has to occur at all levels, from the individual, the institution, our communities, our states, and our nations. And some of these things can only be done by government, but governments do respond to public pressure. Is it too late? Can these trends be reversed? Dick? Yes, I think they can be. Uh, most of the estimates suggest that if we act quickly and we act decisively, uh, we can certainly change the trends in, in CO2 emissions, which will affect the, the rate of change of pH in seawater. If we actually reduce CO2 emissions over the next two or three decades back to the um, 1990 levels or so, we could affect uh, a very small change in pH in the future by the end of the century, less than than 0.1. If we do not, then we have doomed ourselves to 0 0.3, 0 0.4 pH changes for sure. So the choice is ours, but we have to act within the next decade or two. Okay, so there's some urgency that we begin to get, take this issue very seriously at all levels. Bob, I think, I think it's, it's very clear, and you've already mentioned that we need to raise public awareness about this problem and deepen their understanding, and aquariums are places where many in the public go to for information about the marine environment and how we are affecting it. 
Your aquarium in Seattle has been a leader in bringing ocean acidification to the public through your efforts and your partnership with Dick Feely and others at NOAA. Tell us a little bit about the exhibits and programs that you have developed at the Seattle Aquarium. Thanks, Jerry. Uh, we, have, we do have some very exciting uh, partnerships uh, that we have begun, starting with Dick and his colleagues. Uh, and, and I would just say, not to pat ourselves too uh, hard on the back, that, that we're in the very early stages uh, considering the scale of what needs to happen and the urgency. But what, one of those things, uh, Dick has installed uh, uh, field testing equipment directly underneath the Seattle Aquarium, right at the center, center of Seattle's waterfront on Elliott Bay in Puget Sound. Uh, and that is tracking as we speak. Uh, what, what the condition is uh, related to uh, pH uh, right here in Elliott Bay. Uh, in 2015, uh, we will be the test site for the finalists for new uh, pH testing equipment um, uh, that is being developed as part of the X Prize. And a $2 million award will be given to the uh, winners of that prize. And what they're trying to do is to develop compact, reliable, inexpensive, portable testing equipment that can be used in a ubiquitous manner all around the world uh, by scientists and lay people alike. And uh, so the finalists in that pr testing program will be tested at the Seattle Aquarium and some other aquariums around the, the country um, in 2015. We're also working with a number of aquariums. As you mentioned, Jerry, aquariums see, see tens of millions of uh, visitors each year. And we have an opportunity to, as part of that engagement and that visit, to make them more aware. Uh, and, and the key is, how do you do that? How do you do it in a way that um, is, is both uh, understandable uh, and doesn't come across as preaching uh, and doesn't turn people off? That's, a, that's a, one of the tasks that aquariums have. And, and we're collaborating with with you at Long Beach. We're collaborating with the New England Aquarium, the National Aquarium, and others with NOAA's support uh, to develop uh, more effective techniques of, of telling the message, getting the story right, getting it out there in ways that visitors can understand and relate to and act upon. And then finally, uh, we're working from an outreach standpoint here in our state with the uh, uh, Ocean Acidification Center at the University of Washington. Uh, and uh, all these things are, I, I would say, early steps in the sorts of things that we can do, we should do, we must do. And we are very delighted to be partnering with uh, both of you on, on this issue. Cli climate change, ocean acidification, the, these are one of this category of problems called wicked problems, problems that you can't solve, but if you're clever enough, and determined enough, you can manage them to keep their effects within certain bounds. So there's no silver bullet to this issue. But if we're lucky, maybe we can have silver buckshot and we can keep the impacts of ocean acidification within some bounds to minimize its impacts on the ocean and all of marine life. Would either of you like to make a closing comment? I would just ask Dick, silver buckshot, that sounds like a new scientific term. <laughs> You're right, and uh, we're going to use that from now on. I think that's wonderful. 
Well, that I can't take credit for that. That comes from uh, Richard Somerville, and I think it's a it's a wonderful metaphor. I think it's what we need to do to attack these problems from all different perspectives. I want to thank Dick Feely and Bob Davidson for joining me on this edition of Coastal Conversations. I also want to thank the Roddenberry Foundation for making Coastal Conversations possible. I hope you'll all be able to join us next month when we explore the topic of aquaculture. I will be joined by Michael Rubino and Michael Rust of NOAA and Don Kent of the Hub Sea World Research Institute. I'm Jerry Schubel for Coastal Conversations. Thank you.